The following audio is from Norris Ferry Community Church. More information about Norris Ferry Community Church is available at norrisferrychurch.org. Amen. So how many of you were early today? Awesome. Good job, boys. I've, I've felt like I'm late all morning. So we had Halloween and then the fallback. So good job. Good job getting here around the right time. Uh, so this week we're going to continue looking at Romans 4. Last week, uh, the point that Andrew very clearly uh, taught us was that boasting is excluded for those that understand faith. And so why? Why is boasting excluded? Boasting's excluded because we're justified by faith, not by works. And then Paul went through the chronology of Abraham's justification. He's declared justified, righteous in 15.6. He's circumcised in chapter 17. So Abraham was made right before he came under the law. So this week, we continue talking about Abraham. And our text this week answers three basic questions, uh, and there's a lot of scripture here, but if you can sort of hold to these three guideposts, uh, it's a good place to come back if you get lost. First, why not works? We'll see that in the first couple of verses. Secondly, the question is why faith? So it's not works. Well, why is it faith? The last question our text answers is, why does it matter to us? And that's verses 23 and 25. And then finally, as we conclude everything, we'll look at the big question that we always ask. Anytime we approach the text, we come away and we say, so what? What does it matter to me and to my life? When I see the truths of the scripture, how should that change the way that I live? So that's sort of a, a rough outline of where we're going. If you'd rise with me, we'll read the, read the word, and then we'll pray that the Lord would bless our time together. This is Romans 4, verses 13 through 25. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old. Or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. 
That is why it was credited to him as righteousness. But the words that was counted to him as righteousness were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's pray. Father, uh, we thank you for your word, which reveals who you are and what you require of us. We pray that you'd bless our time this morning as we study your word. Give us ears to hear and eyes to see. Let us leave today with a clearer picture of who you are, and may that impact our lives and the lives of those around us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. So we're still talking about the promise of Abraham, and just to sort of frame everything, this, this became synonymous with who is a child of God. Are you an heir to the promise? Are you a child of God? So anytime we talk about the promise in these verses, that's what we're talking about. So let's dive into our first question. Why not works? So Paul made it clear that boasting's prohibited because we're not made right by our works. Paul tells us here why we're not made right by our works. Verse 13, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Well, why is that? For if the adherents of the law are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. Well, why is that? For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So we're going to handle that last part a little bit later. It's kind of tricky. But let's look at Paul's argument. Let's look at the heart of his argument here. It can't be works. It has to be faith. And why does it have to be faith? Because the law only brings wrath. The law only brings wrath. Surely Paul, a Pharisee, had read Psalm 19. He knew that the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. So are Paul and David at odds here? No. The problem's not with the law, the good law that God has given. The problem is with the one who's trying to keep the law. Because no one keeps the law. Essentially what Paul is saying is that if the promise depends on human ability to keep the law, then we're sunk. We've already failed. You can go ahead and void out the promise because we can't do it. Paul's addressing an audience, and many in this audience thought that their possession of the law or their ability to keep the law was what made them right before God. And Paul says, no. Your possession of the law makes you doubly guilty before God. So if I were to drive around South Shreveport and I saw some good woods and I hopped back there and I decided I was going to kill a deer, I would be wrong whether there's a no trespassing sign or not. But if there's a trespassing sign, no trespassing sign, I'm doubly guilty. Paul's not saying that before the law came there was no sin. He's already made it clear that no one's without excuse, whether you had the law or whether you didn't have the law. We were doing badly enough without the law. But what the law does is it shows us how far off the mark we are. 
You see, that's the purpose of the law. It was never meant to be a means of justification. The law is a diagnostic tool. So it shows us a standard and it reveals how far we fall below the standard. God being a just God looks at our actions, looks at our works and what they've earned, and then he looks at the standard and we're condemned. We're guilty. And the penalty for that guilt is wrath, death. So you all look very uplifted by the sermon this morning. (laughs) Stick with me. It gets better. So why not works? Because our works only condemn us. They're powerless to make us right with God. Let's keep going. What's the second question? Thank you. Why faith? So we've got a great primer on the inability of the law to make us right. Paul's now going to move into the ability of faith. So in this section, we'll see two things. We'll see why it is faith that makes us right before God. But then he's going to go through the story of Abraham and show us some particulars about the type of faith that Abraham had and ultimately the type of faith uh, that justifies. So let's start in verse 16. That, referring to everything that we just said, is why it depends on faith. In order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I've made you the father of many nations. I've been waiting for a while to see that word. I don't know how many of you have been going through Romans, but I hadn't seen grace. Not nearly enough for me as a wretched sinner. Well, here it is. Grace. What is grace? There's a lot of different ways that you could define grace. I think a very simple one that stuck with me is that grace is getting something good that you don't deserve. Grace is unmerited favor. Now, we could camp out here for quite a while. You could preach sermons and sermons and sermons on verse 16, on the depth of this grace, on understanding what Paul means here by grace. That's not our purpose this morning. What we're looking at is Paul's total argument here, and I think it suffices to say that the promise depends on faith so that it may rest on grace. So faith is the means by which we're justified, but grace is the basis on which we can be justified. So it's not a righteousness that's based on earning what we deserve. We learned that last week. We don't get what we deserve. We get what we don't deserve. Faith through grace is a gift. The righteousness that comes from faith comes from the Father. Not from ethnic identification or our ability to keep every jot and tittle of the law. And because of that, it can be guaranteed to all. Not just the Jew, but also the Gentile. Not just to the circumcised, but to the uncircumcised. So let's get back to our question. Why faith? Because faith lets the promise rest on grace. And when the promise rests on grace given from God, ultimately it rests on the person who gives us that grace. So the promise is based on the giver. 
It's based on God, not on our ability to keep it. And that's what we see in the rest of our passage here. So the argument from here on out is not quite as linear. So we're going to read a chunk and then we'll go back and see what it says. This is 17 through 22. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations. As he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why it was counted to him as righteousness. So I think verse 17 is the main point. Verses 18 and 19 bolster or support that point. God had made a promise to Abraham that he would be the father of many nations, and Abraham believed him. What we're considering now is, well, why did Abraham believe him? Abraham believed him because of what follows there in verse 17. Abraham believed him because he gives life to the dead and calls into existence things that don't exist. So I want us to pause here and consider the enormity of these two claims. And we'll work in reverse. Let's take the first one first. That's kind of a truism there. All right. He calls things that don't exist into existence. Throughout Paul's argument, he's been referring back to, uh, to, to Genesis. And so his audience, when he hears, calls things to exist that didn't exist, they go straight to creation. The Lord says, let there be light, and there's light. The sound of his voice calls the world into existence. I don't know if any of you studied cosmology, the study of the universe, but this is a big deal. We can observe the world, we can look at stars, we can look at, at microorganisms, and we can see some amazing things. We see that everything that we observe, though, came from something else. We can see that. What we can't see is how that pattern started. Well, Abraham and Paul, they know how that pattern started. God called the world into existence. And so when he makes a promise to Abraham that I'm going to give you a people, and that people doesn't exist yet, that doesn't freak Abraham out. Because Abraham knows this is the God who's the reason we're here. He called the world into existence. I'm sure he can drum up some airs for me. The next claim hits us a little bit closer to home. You see, death is something that we'll all face. We face it in theory, and we face it in practice. We all know people who've died, or, uh, you know, if the Lord tarries, and you can come to the Revelation class at 9 a.m. to find out about that, if the Lord doesn't tarry, Some of us will be saved, but if he tarries, all of us will eventually face death. So this is a tragic effect of the fall. So in the fall, we saw pain in childbirth. We saw that we now have to work and we don't enjoy it. Uh, We really have to toil to live. But this is an effect that we've, we've been able to alleviate a little bit. We've been able to make death a little bit more comfortable. We've been able to delay death. 
but we can't eliminate it. Death is something that we'll all face, the greatest adversary that we see. Now, maybe it's because of the movies coming out, but as I was prepping, I kept thinking about Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs was a brilliant, brilliant man. He had incredible influence. And he just had just dump trucks full of money. He had everything that we long for, influence, power, and wealth. He could look out on the world and tangibly see his imprint. Right now, in this room, I bet there's 150 iPhones. He had made an impression on the world. He had power, wealth, and influence. But despite all that, when cancer turned his own body against himself, he was powerless to do anything about it. I think about Alexander the Great. He conquered the whole world. And he died. The historians aren't quite sure if it was poisoning or malaria. But think about that. The ruler of the world could have been killed by a mosquito. So we see these two men with power and influence and wealth. But in the end, they proved to be frail and vulnerable and completely powerless to combat death. It's easier, it's, it's easier for us to think about historical figures or famous people. But right now, there are people that we've broken bread with in this room who sit at death's door. And try as they may and fight as they may, they're unable to do anything about it. They're dealing with the reality and the severity of our mortality. And that weight is crushing. It's crushing not only for them, but it's crushing for everybody that they love. Everybody that cares about them feel the weight of this reality. But Abraham knew a God that gives life to the dead. So Abraham didn't waver in his faith Because he knows that God has the power of creation and God has the power over death. Two things that despite our thousands of years of innovation and effort, we've not come close to budging either of those things. We can't create from nothing and we don't have power over death. So does the promise to a hundred-year-old man that he's going to be the father of nations sound crazy? It does. Unless you know Abraham's God. So, at this point, we need to acknowledge that Abraham was not perfect. Before God made this promise to him, he sold his wife out because he was afraid that the Pharaoh would kill him. I don't recommend that. It's a bad plan. And then after God had made this promise to him, he took Hagar and tried to speed God's promises up. Well, maybe it's not going to come through Sarah. Maybe it's going to come through Hagar. So Paul's not saying here that Abraham was perfect. 
What Paul is saying is that if you look at the trajectory of Abraham's faith, it's not characterized by the man who took Hagar. It's characterized by the man who knew that if he sacrificed Isaac, God would raise him up again. So Abraham had full assurance that God was able to do what he had promised because Abraham knew who God was. And this faith is why it was credited to him as righteousness. So why not works? Because our works only condemn us. Why faith? In order that the promises may rest on grace. This gift of grace from a powerful God who holds creation in his hand and is able to give life to what was dead. That's a God who inspires full assurance. So why does it matter to us? Let's look at our last three verses here. But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but also for ours. It will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So this is a little bit of an aside. This is not Paul's argument, but I want you to acknowledge here that Paul has said, this thing that was written thousands of years ago was written for your sake. It was written for the Romans' sake, and it was written for our sake, who have faith in Christ. And so when we say that the Bible is the Word of God, that's what we're talking about. That the Spirit inspires men to record something that will accomplish God's purposes thousands of years down the road. But let's look at what Paul's saying. This was written for our sake because our assurance and our justification comes to us the same way that Abraham's came to him. It comes through faith in God. But Paul could have just left it there and we would have gotten the point. But he didn't. He brings up Christ. I think there's two main reasons that Paul brings up Christ, at least two that we're going to discuss here. The first is that Christ is the full expression of who God is. So if Abraham's faith is grounded in knowing who God is, it makes sense to bring up a full expression of who God is. We're going to look here at Colossians 1. Uh, We'll start at 15 through 20. I think it makes this point. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's talking about Christ here. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him, and he is before all things. And in him all things hold together, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. The basis of our faith is the greatness and the character of God. And nowhere is that seen more clearly than in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The second reason that Paul brings up Jesus is because he's the basis of the grace that we talked about. God extends grace to those of us who don't deserve it. We deserve death. We deserve punishment. But God lets us off 
And we've said before that God can't just give a mulligan. These sins have to be paid for. He's just, he said that this is the penalty, death. And so if God's going to be just, he must punish our sin. And for God to be God, he must be just. So in Christ, we see how God can be just and the one who justifies. Let's keep looking there at Colossians verses 21 and 22. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. So who paid our debt? Jesus. And we see there in verse 25 of Romans 4. He was delivered up for our trespasses. He was punished for the sins that you and I commit. But the scripture doesn't stop there. He was raised for our justification. So what does the resurrection of God, of Jesus prove? Proves that the payment is accepted. That when God pours out his wrath on Christ, he sees and is satisfied. There's no more wrath to pour out. Our sins have been paid for, and we see that in the resurrection. Sometimes it's called the glorious exchange. Christ gets our filth, our guilt, our struggle, and he gives us his righteousness, his victory, his perfection. So when God looks at the balance sheet, he sees the perfect work that Christ has done. Because we're perfect? No, because Christ was perfect. And just like Abraham, we've been credited with Christ's perfection. So why does it matter to us? It matters to us because the faith of the holy God who raised Christ from the dead is the means of our justification, just like he was the means of Abraham's justification. So that's our text for today. So what? How does what we've learned here apply to our lives. I think it's very clear what Andrew said last week. Boasting is prohibited. If our justification is based on what God's done and not what we've done, we have nothing to boast about. But secondly, if what we read here is true, then our salvation is secure. Because it doesn't rest on us. It doesn't rest on our ability to be perfect. It doesn't rest on our ability to keep the law. It rests on our faithful God. I'm sure you've heard the term eternal security or the perseverance of the saints. And what that means is that those who truly have faith in Christ will endure to the end. And indeed they will. But not because of their merit. Not because of their self-control, because of their willpower. They endure to the end because the great, faithful God who raised them from the dead holds them in his hand and their destiny is secure in him. So I think that's the clear application here. We can have the same assurance that Abraham had that God is able to do what he's promised he'll do. But I've got to be honest. As I was prepping this sermon, a question kept coming to my head. 
well, what if I don't have that faith? And I think there are two sorts of people who could ask this question, and I think we'll see that the answer is the same to both of them. Let's talk first about the believer. I know that everything that we've said here is true. I've read the Bible. I believe it. But man, it's a struggle. Every day I'm tempted to take things into my own hands. Every day I'm tempted to work out my own salvation. Every day I'm tempted to do things the way I think they should be done because I don't trust that if I do things his way, it's going to work out. I think the scripture has a great answer for us. In Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, we read, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary and faint-hearted. What's the point? Bear down. Throw yourself into the study of the word. Look to Jesus. He's not just the founder of our faith. He's the perfecter of our faith. And remember, this is the same book where we hear, don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. The Christian walk is hard. And God's made provision in the community of faith. So when doubt and temptation sneak in and they begin to weaken your faith, hunker down with your brothers and sisters in Christ who love you and love the Lord. Now the second faith struggler Maybe it doesn't buy in. I'm not quite sure I believe anything that you're saying. I understand. You know, all that sounds great, but, but where do I get this faith that you keep talking about is so essential? I think we've got a clear answer in the text. It won't be on the screen, but a lot of you will remember it. Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, it will be open. Or which one of you, if his son lacks uh, or asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, Jesus doesn't mince words, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask? I know this sounds simple. But if you lack faith and you want it, I think the scripture says that you ask God for it. Well, yeah, but I, I don't even know if God exists as lovingly as I can say this to you. I do. Can you muster enough faith to say, give me more faith? Can you say, I don't know. I don't know what I'm doing, God, but if you could give me this faith of Abraham. Can you do that? As we close out, we're going to look at a man who did just that. 
This is a story from Mark 9. Jesus and Peter, James and John were coming down from the transfiguration. So this was a time where these disciples saw Christ in his glorified state. A clearer picture than any of us have of who he really is. And then they head down from the mountain. I don't know if you've noticed a sort of a biblical pattern. When you head down from the mountain, something's about to hit the fan. Always. Just, just stay on the mountain. So, so they're coming down and they see a crowd and they go to investigate. And what they find out is that there's a man who's brought his boy to see the disciples because the boy has an evil spirit. The spirit seizes him and, and, and makes him convulse and makes him foam at the mouth. And the disciples couldn't do anything about it. And, and, and Jesus comes down and they tell him the story. And in 19 we read, oh, faithless generation. How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Do you still not get it? Do you still not understand? Do you still not have faith? But he doesn't stop there. He tells them, bring him to me. And they brought the boy, and when the spirit saw Jesus, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell to the ground, and he rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked the father, how long has this been going on? The father says, from childhood. And it often casts him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. So this is a father who every day of his life with his boy, he sees the reality, the severity, the weight of death. Because it's always just around the corner. And he says, but if you can do it, Have compassion. And Jesus again, even taken aback more. If I can do anything, all things are possible to him who believes. And this father, who's in such a weakened state, tired of dealing with this and probably not feeling up for a theological debate with Jesus, just throws his hands up and he says, I believe. Help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that the crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit and he said to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out of the boy. And he was like a corpse. So that most of them said, He's dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up. And he arose. I believe. Help my unbelief. I know that it sounds simple. But the biblical prescription for a lack of faith is going to the one who supplies it. If you lack faith, go to the Father. And ask for it. Let's pray. Lord God, we are humbled 
by your provision. We're humbled by your generosity to give your son so that we could be right with you. We know that the gifts that you've given us are not what we deserve. They're what Christ earned. And we thank you for that. Father, we pray that that truth would be ingrained on our heart. And that we would know that it's not our work that makes us right with you. But faith in who you are. Faith in the God who calls the world into existence with the sound of his voice and gives life to that which was dead. Our only response is gratitude. Thank you for listening to audio from Norris Ferry Community Church located in Shreveport, Louisiana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Norris Ferry Community Church, please visit us online at norrisferrychurch.org.